Welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast, where filmmakers become entrepreneurs. With my dad, he's a dork. Hi, and welcome to the Film Trooper Podcast. I'm your host, Scott McMahon. This is the podcast where we try to help filmmakers become entrepreneurs. Today, my guest is Mike Vogel, a filmmaker and transmedia artist slash entrepreneur up here in Portland, Oregon. I met Mike through Twitter, so there you go. I just used some social media tools and set up a face-to-face meeting and got a great interview. Normally, I do a quick tip of the day, but this interview is loaded with some really good stuff, so I don't want to delay any anymore. Mike has made two feature films that are really good, and his latest project is this unique transmedia iOS app called Friendnik, kind of like schizophrenic, but just Friendnik. It's really impressive to see how much he's accomplished, but yet he has to hold down a full-time job, you know, he's got to still support his family, so it's just some stuff to think about, you know, because you might make some good film projects, but it's still a grind to try to make a sustainable living from it. So is there still a way to create a sustainable living from your art, from your films, um, even though you've had some success? I'll touch upon a little tip at the end of the podcast, so stay tuned for that. One quick shout-out to Jaina Hertig for leaving a five-star rating on iTunes. So, yay, that is so cool. I'm super grateful for the support. And if you would like to leave a five-star rating on iTunes for me, please do so, and I will read your name on the next podcast. Okay, now on to my interview with filmmaker, transmedia entrepreneur, Mike Vogel, here on the Film Trooper Podcast. So welcome. This is We're here at J&M Cafe in southeast Portland off Ash. So I'll, I'll put it in the show notes. And I'm here with Mike Vogel. Uh, and I met you on Twitter like we were just talking. And it's funny because I think I was following you via some other people in locally here in Portland that were filmmakers, and like your name was somebody that somebody's following. Mm-hmm. So I started following you, and then I did pr- uh, post that question uh, not only into Twitter, but I did it to like uh, Facebook and uh, some Google Plus communities, just asking what's the greatest thing you love about filmmaking, and what's the greatest pain you love about well, not love the p- greatest yeah. pain you have about filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of uh, how we got connected. And then I, I was funny. Actually, I was following you. I had now. How do I pronounce your um, your latest transmedia uh, effort? Is it Frenic? It's called uh, Frenic. Yeah. Frenic. Yeah. Frenic. So it's like schizophrenic, but without this. Okay, so schizophrenic. Yeah. yeah. So it's P H R E N I C. Yeah. So Frenic. First of all, I was I had that on my um, phone and stuff prior to even asking the question. So I was okay. watching and following that already. And uh, we'll get more into that, but it's really cool, and it's it's really well done, and I, it's one of those things that's like, I, I want to talk to you more about those efforts and just in general filmmaking. Yeah, that'd be great. Thanks. Okay, so... Thanks the, for having me. Yeah, and oh, it's, it's a, our first sort of frosty morning here <laughs> of uh, the fall of 2013 in, in Portland. I was worried that there might be some like ice in the road, because I, I live up on top of um, like a mountain park area, so it's oh, like yeah. a very... It gets uh, more frost and black ice probably more than other people. So I was kind of worried that this driveway I have will be like <laughs> sliding down like, the driveway right into my neighbor's uh, garage. You know. <laughs> yeah. I um I usually bike in to work in the morning. I bike my daughters to school, and um, we're getting to that point where instead of like wiping dew off of you know bike seats in the morning, I have to actually like, get out a credit card and scrape <laughs> actually scrape the bike seats because there's frost on them. Oh my gosh. So, but it's how, fun. How many kids do you have? I have two, two daughters. Yeah. 
What's the ages? Um, they're in fourth grade and first grade. Okay, so my daughter's in sixth grade. So yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah, just one. We were scared to have another one. Yeah. Actually, the, re- the re- funny thing about that was, we have twins in our line of family. My wife and I. Oh yeah. And when our daughter was at a certain age, we we're at, like some family restaurant, and we saw this other family that has a daughter the same age, but they had two twin boys, and the look on their faces was like. Oh God, you know, and I think we scared the crap out of us to like yeah. even try. <laughs> you, you, you go, you go instantly outnumbered, you know, from from outnumbering the kids to being evenly matched. But if yeah. you throw twins in there, you're instantly outnumbered. And I know, and I, I, I just, I, I just saw it like uh, maybe, and then, and then it was funny. I think the, and then the economy got uh, messed up or like it crashed, and then it just never seemed like the right time to have another one. And yeah, so, and then by the time my daughter's old enough, do you want a brother or sister? She's like, no. <laughs> <laughs> You just want a babysitter, don't you? Exactly. She's just want to, like, yeah, the, the big sister that you can hire yeah. for, like, one, one week out of the month. I did a little bit of that when I was growing up. There's, like, a 10-year difference between um, me and my youngest brother. So I, I do remember being sort of, like, the, the teenage babysitter to him. Oh, and, right. Which is funny now because it's, like, you know, we're both grown up. You can't really tell much of an age difference, but... I always like to tell the stories about how I, I used to change his diapers and things oh like that. Oh, my so. God. How many um, siblings do you have? Four. So two brothers, two sisters. So you have two older... One older brother, two one. younger sisters, and one younger brother. Okay, so you're right there, sort of in the middle. Yeah. And, um, and my youngest brother, actually, uh, John, he actually helped out on um, the, the first feature film that I did. He's a school teacher, and... Um, and did he give you access to that location? He, well, the thing that he gave us, yeah, was the school. So he kind of cleared it with his principal. He works for a charter school and, um, you know, talked to them and said, you know, can we, can he, can we use his classroom to film in because we need a location. And, right. And they cleared it, but they said, all right, you can do it. But on this day, you know, um, we're going to wax the floors. And once we wax the floors, you can't go back in there until school starts. So we had like... It, it, it was nice because it put a firm deadline on when we needed to shoot. We had three weekends that we could get in there um, and actually film it. So it's kind of nice. It's sometimes it's nice to have those kind of like hard deadlines. Yeah. Like here's you know here's your limitation. You got to figure out a way to work within it. Um, but it was really nice because the the concept of the movie was um, uh, you know people trying to get their kids into a preschool, which is something that I actually had gone through with my wife like where we stayed overnight to um are you serious that was real that was real um it was we were living in california at the time um so i'm i but i've heard that that kind of thing kind of thing happens you know here in portland as well um but we did that like um we actually teamed up with another uh group of parents and we did 12 hour shifts so it was actually 48 hours and um i had the very last one and um so you you know, I think I got in there at like eight o'clock at night, and you know, left at eight o'clock in the morning. Um, but it was really fun because there's a lot. It was, you know, I tried to capture that in the movie a little bit. There's a, sort of like a camaraderie between mm-hmm. people. Like people really felt like this is weird that we're doing this. Everyone's kind of like, you know, only been a parent for a few years, really, um, and just kind of trying to figure out, you know, what is, <laughs> what are we doing here? Like, kind of joking about it, but also like this is important enough to me that we. Um, that I actually follow through, you know, and get my kid into this one because I like it. So um, I tried to capture that um, in the movie, and we needed a big classroom. And so it was very convenient that he was a first-grade teacher. We could kind of use it. Even some of the, 
you know, things that he would have on the walls, like he'd have like ABCs and yeah. numbers and things like that. We didn't even have to come in with that stuff. No you know, there's toys like, sitting it's around. All there. So it's just like, yeah, location ready to go, just go in there. Uh, we brought a couch in, I believe, um, and that was about the only you know, major thing that we had to do for the location. So, Well, I thought it was, first of all, if everybody doesn't know, it's called The Waiting List. The Waiting List, yeah. And um, it's free on YouTube to watch yeah, on your site, Michael, no, MikeVogel.com. It's on MikeVogel.com. I think you can go to the waitinglistmovie.com too. But, um, waitinglistmovie.com. Yeah, I'll double and check it's, it. You know, I was, well, I was, one thing I was watching and I was thinking to myself, like, so the school didn't care about, they didn't have to read the script prior. <laughs> no. <laughs> well, he kind of told me, yeah, because it is definitely, um, I think the tagline is something like it's a, uh, you know, foul mouth, sex obsessed movie about preschool enrollment. Yeah. Um, and, and it definitely is. I, I think one thing I was trying to do was talk about, um, you know, a lot of, I'd spent the year prior to that, um, when we moved from California back to Oregon, um, I spent a year as a stay-at-home dad, you know, by choice, just trying to, like, figure things out and kind of reassess things. And I, I thought it would be kind of relaxing in a way, which was really naive of me. And then I realized just how much work it is to, like, be in charge of two kids all day long, nonstop, you know. And you, you feel like you never get a break. Um, and it was this glimpse into this world that was just like, I feel this frustration and I know other people, you know, when you talk to other people on the playground or whatever, other parents, they're feeling it. But at that time it wasn't, it seems like it, I, I didn't know anyone else that was talking about the frustration. There's like one person, um, you know, Louis C.K. was talking about it um, before he became this, mm-hmm. you know, huge Louis C.K. that he is today. But, um, but there wasn't, you know, Modern Family and all these other shows that are kind of bringing this up so I felt like there was this gap like this is my experience this doesn't match the experience of parenting that you see everywhere else so um, I just kind of wanted to make a movie about it and so it is a little bit you know there's times when it's kind of vulgar and there's people talking very I would say honestly but also it's pretty explicit for a movie about preschool um, preschool enrollment you know it's funny it's interesting you're the two movies um, the first two features uh, The Waiting List and Did You Kiss Somebody or to kiss someone? Did like, you kiss anyone? Did you kiss anyone? Thanks. Did you kiss anyone? Yeah. It's. It has. Um, they both have like this tone of. Uh, there's a sweetness to it and heart to it, but then it's just like there'll be this raunch, you know, that raunch. Yeah. But like it, it, it will go in those uh, areas of like, um, like what? That's in yeah. a good way. It's because like, you know, like uh, like Judd Apatow stuff, like mm. this is forty or something. Will have that sort of same tone, but there's a weird thing like uh, where he gets his. His uh, his comedies comes from like this pain someplace where it's 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 uncomfortable watching like the a couple just like like argue and bicker as much as they do and there's some funny insults left and right yeah and they still come out of it but it's like it's almost crossing that line of like I, I you know I, I, you know it's where it's like there, there's there's some fun tongue in cheek sort of um, ribbing that you know friends yeah. do or like um, with Seth uh, uh, Ro- um, Rogan, Seth Rogen so and Evan Goldberg, when yeah. they write their stuff, you can tell they tell, and when they get their friends together, it's all about, you know, harassing each other in yeah. a way. But it does cross that, you can cross that line of like, oh, it's getting now uncomfortable, you know? Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, their stuff is interesting. I always like that, it seems like in their movies, they always have the outtakes at the end that they show during the credits that are always hilarious of like, just, you know, yeah. you can see that a lot of that stuff, they just improv, um, come up with worse and worse insults. Um, but yeah, it is definitely, um, I think, you know, when you talk about the pain or whatever, I think anyone that's doing something funny, it also typically is, 
you know, it's just that cliche of like people like to use humor to mask some sort of pain or as like a defense mechanism. And I think that that is, you know, a little bit true for everyone. Um, I know that I, one of the reasons um, I feel like I started to, you know, tell jokes and stuff was definitely that defense mechanism. Like tell a joke, uh, you know, about something before someone else can tell it. You know, before someone else can make fun of you, you kind of make them laugh first. Yeah, yeah, you diffuse, um, right. And, and I think that that kind of translates into other things. So as, as you're dealing with, you know, problems that might be hard or whatever, you know, that, you know, might be uncomfortable, it's a good way to bring humor into them as well. And it kind of makes the uncomfortable part a little more palatable. So sometimes, you know, a, a joke is actually about the more uncomfortable thing and the, the laugh is just a way of getting you to that, you know. Um, yeah. So, like in, you know, I think one of the scenes um, from Did You Kiss Anyone, I don't know if this is what you're referring to, but, you know, there's a scene that takes place in a bathroom between, uh, you know, the husband and wife. And it's kind of, it's an uncomfortable scene, I think. And it's definitely designed to be that way. It's, you know, very awkward and probably unpleasant, but it's also, um, it, that's not based on any actual experience, but like it's that, that, that I don't know those types of experiences right. you know it's like it's not all rosy all the time it's not you know um, now you're talking about the specific opening scene when she's yeah. on the toilet yeah exactly. you can see yeah like you have like I think on your whole that whole site you have um, you can see like the opening scene you know and you can oh, yeah. see the dynamics yeah and you're probably wondering, like, I, you shot, when did you shoot that? When did you guys? It was a couple of years ago now. I, I, I'm, I, I'm not good with chronology, <laughs> like, figuring out when things happen. Because I was wondering, because I was thinking, like, that was shot a while ago, but you're probably saying, like, when you saw, like, um, This is 40, like, oh, wait a minute, that's my toilet seat. Oh, yes, it was, exactly. <laughs> that, it was, so that movie is full of, um, I love Did You Kiss Anyone? It's, it was really so much fun to make, and it was, you know, I had like over a hundred people help me make that movie and there were people that most of them I didn't know ahead of time I, I knew them on Twitter or something and it's amazing I don't know why it's not like I'm someone you know like oh I want to be on his thing because he's famous or something like no one knows me it's just a matter of like are you nice to people do you know how to ask for things the right way that's you know what making a movie is about um, and so there's a lot of people that helped out and um you know, very supportive, and we made it happen. We'd just go into locations and say, "Is it okay if we film here?" You know, and we'd have to. We'd go into there are a lot of bar scenes and stuff, so we'd have to get people, um, you know, up at seven in the morning on a Sunday to film a bar scene and block out all the windows and things like that. So um, there was a lot of um, that sort of, you know, getting lots of people together to make it happen on a low budget. Um, and um, I was tying this into what you were just saying. Sorry. Oh, when you was like, I was saying this is forty had the toilet seat. Yeah, they oh, stole. So yeah, <laughs> not stole, but so it's we were just doing like, that. So I, so super happy about all that stuff. But as we were making the movie, we're about halfway through shooting, and the theme of it, the basically the tagline I was using to tell people is, a married couple give each other, you know, one night free pass to go out and do anything the hall pass yeah and then, <laughs> but then even before hall pass there was one called uh the freebie and it's literally like i was looking to see like all right the, you know they announced all the sundance movies and i'm you know scrolling through the website and i see one for the freebie and it's literally almost to the word the same okay. exact description that we were using to like tell people about it and it was like i honestly like felt physically ill almost of just like oh you know because you always you always 
imagine what's going to happen to this movie when I'm done with it. You know, are you going to get it into film festivals? And, and, and my fear was, it wasn't like, okay, now we're not getting to Sundance. Like, I didn't even plan that we would get in there. But it's just sort of like, is this going to be the thing that we're always compared to now? It's like, oh, this is just a copy of that one. You know, so it's just, right. oh, it was so frustrating at the time. But it was like, I know that they were different enough. Even just looking at the trailer and, you know, understanding like, okay, th- we're, we're taking this in more of uh, a comedy route. So they're going to be different movies. And, you know, and I still love this movie. Let's keep making it. So we did that. Um, but then after we'd done filming, um, the other one came out, Hall Pass. You know, yeah. it's like, oh. And then <laughs> while we were, you know, I forget what it was, maybe a year later when we're done, it's, you know, the film's completely finished. I saw the preview for um, whatever. It was, this is 40, this is 40 I think. Right? Yeah. I think there's even another one. I think there's actually, or maybe it's not this is 40. It might be... Um, the switch or the exchange no. or something. It's I think it's Judd Apatow's wife that's in it. Right, right. Yeah. With Justin uh, Justin Bateman, Les- Jason Bateman, Leslie, yeah, Justin Bateman and Leslie. I forget what her name is, but yeah. So Leslie Mann is her yes, name. Yes, yeah. Leslie Mann. So, yeah, so I think Jason she's Bateman, in the Leslie one that Mann, I saw, right. and I was yeah. like, I can't believe it. You know, we were getting ready to go see Bridesmaids or something, and <laughs> in the preview there's that scene, and I was like, no. And my wife just looked at me and was like don't get depressed it's okay <laughs> yeah so that's actually why I put that scene online I was just like I want to get this up and like time stamped <laughs> almost of like alright this was obviously filmed and edited before this so right but yeah it is it, it, that's a struggle when you create something is that sometimes something comes out that's very similar and they're, they're sort of done you know no one's copying anyone no one's like inspired by anyone I, I would actually I've, I've thought about this a lot in terms of the the hall pass freebie did you kiss anyone thing and my guess is that there was an episode there's a season of of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm where it's their t- I think it's like their 10th anniversary and he says well, remember when we you know first started going out you said that if we made it 10 years um, oh yummy yeah. thank you alright uh, but she says, um, you know, when you were, uh, let me, back, I'll back up on the this first thing. Yeah. So, um, there's a season like two years before all those movies came out of Curb Your Enthusiasm where, um, it was their 10 year anniversary. And he said, well, when we first started dating, you said, if we made 10 years, you know, you'd let me have a fling with someone. <laughs> and obviously in 10 years later, it's changed. And so it, it's the, part of the, that whole season is him just kind of, you know, finding someone. And it's, it, of course, it doesn't work out because it's Larry David. Of um, course. <laughs> <laughs> but I think a lot of people saw that and were like, yeah, that's a, that's a nice concept, you know, because it, it's just there's something inherent, there's tension in there inherently. So um, I think a lot of people saw that and were like, all right, I'm going to do my own take on that same idea. Um, so things like that. I think it's helpful to look at, like, if something is inspiring you to also wonder, like, is this, how many other people is this idea going to inspire? Like, are there going to be two years from now, is all the people that are inspired by this going to be producing the same thing? Um, but you can't really guess that, but it's just something that, you I know, was, to be aware of almost. I always take solace in, like, um, the story of Big, Tom Hanks and, um, and um, oh, Marshall, what was her name? Uh, uh, pe- I can't remember who was in that. Uh, uh, no, who's the director? Marshall. What's her first name? Oh, Starts with a P. Penny. Penny, thank you. I was going to say Penelope, but it's Penny. <laughs> can't believe it. She's like one of the biggest directors ever. <laughs> Anyhow. Laverne. So the story goes there. By the time the big came out in whatever, 85, 
it was the last. It was like the fourth movie of that kind that came out that year that had the switch premise. Mm. But nobody remembers the other f- three or four because Big was so good. It had like a timeless factor to it. So you know that's something that people sort of remind other people like don't be don't feel fret if like your idea comes out there's it happens all the time if you you know follow like varieties trade papers mm-hmm. some uh, some Yahoo there's so much hype there's so much stuff that's announced in variety that never gets made so it's like <laughs> I had a friend who's uh, producing a film and they announced their film and then um, it was like a, a Pablo Escobar story that they had rights to and then all of a sudden some other competing producer production company announces they're they're slated to start shooting you know it's mm-hmm. like this one-upmanship so you you see this all this like hype and heat happen in Hollywood where you get a lot of attention on a project everybody's ca- calling you talking to, to you about something and when something comes out of trade papers that will just be the similar project and the heat will die so yeah. you just have to have that longevity to it um I'm going to pause real quick, get a water so you can eat a yeah. little bit. Eat yeah, I'll coffee too. Okay, we're back. We took a quick break to eat some breakfast. Um, I did all the talking while Mike got a chance to eat. <laughs> <laughs> that was a really good breakfast. <laughs> it was. It's pretty yummy. All right, I'm going to stick this in your mouth. There you go. No, don't worry about yes. it. As long as like, you can just sit here and not feel, um, yeah. Is that Okay. Exactly. So he's all, all as right. long as you don't feel like your back's being strained. You know? Yeah. I don't want to feel like I'm leaning over too. Right. So. I do this. That's a good one. <laughs> Hand on the chin. Hand on the chin. Somebody's like, I love that. Hmm. Napoleon Dynamite. <laughs> this all oh, yeah. with the hand on the chin. <laughs> That's awesome. Anyhow, so we, had, we were getting uh, started with this conversation um, about how we connected and, and just connecting through all these social media networks and stuff like that. But um, before we get into that, I want to go back to sort of the beginning for yourself, mm-hmm. which is... Um, you know, I mentioned in some of my pri- previous podcasts, like, you know, the kind of a structure of story, but how life sort of mirrors that structure of story sometimes. And, yeah. like, the first part of it is that every story has to establish the ordinary world or the rules of that world. So the question in for you is, like, so where were you born? And, you know, how'd you come to Portland? Yeah, uh, so... I was actually born in Illinois, kind of like in rural farmland Illinois, and lived there... Uh, we moved to the Chicago suburbs when I was like kindergarten or so, um, and I lived there till I was about ten. And when I was so after fourth grade, moved across the country to Oregon. My dad got a different job and moved a family of five kids across the country in a station wagon. Like I still remember, you know, like no one's wearing seatbelts or anything. It was oh, just like sitting in the back seat. And, <laughs> um, so that was really fun. But. Um, Moved out to Oregon and, you know, spent most of, through college in Oregon, spent four years um, on the East Coast in New Hampshire and Maine, and then about eight years in California, and then decided to move back just because it was like, our kids are getting older, we have to go to, you know, send them to school soon, and um, we just love Oregon so much. What part of California? We were in the Bay Area, so kind of oh. all along the peninsula, like okay. every, you know, Palo Alto, Mountain View, Burlingame. It seemed like we moved every year or so. Um, and so we just stayed in, like, all those different places. But it's, you know, I, it, I loved it there. We were doing a lot of, I was doing a lot of fun stuff. I was traveling a lot, um, doing a lot of video, um, you know, like webcasting things um, for a company. So that let me, you know, go to China and Brazil and lots of exotic places. But at the same time, it was like... 
you know, is this a good long-term strategy? I was having a blast, but it was like, all right, you know, I always felt like there was like one thing missing. Like I was always working on side projects, but I just could never figure out, you know, what's the thing that's missing? I, I need to, I have this sort of creative impulse to, to write and to make things. Um, and I, I never really considered a movie at that point, but I just thought, you know, how do I, how do I take that creative impulse and make sure I'm not squandering it, you know? Because I, I was being creative in my job, but it was that's different being creative for someone else than um, coming up with an idea and kind of making it the way you want to make it. And there's a certain amount of, you know, it's you know it's like for any kind of craft, you know, you can make a chair for Ikea or you can make your own chair that kind of, you know, maybe you never sell it or something to take that analogy further. But, um, but you made it, you know, so there's a lot of pride in that too. So I think that was the thing that I was missing is the I made this chair feeling. Um, and that's kind of what I wanted to, to, to get, I guess. Now... When did you know? When did the like in storytelling they have? Um, I love the book uh, "Save the Cat" uh, by Blake mm. Snyder. It's like it's to me, for me, it's like that was a real eye opener about mm-hmm. screenwriting and storytelling. So the whole premise of the "Save the Cat" is that your protagonist has to have a moment of saving the cat, just something that shows the audience a, an ounce of humanity or something that subconsciously the audience says, "Okay, I buy into these characters, and I'm going to follow them through." the end of the story mm-hmm. now you have a lot, some of that, a lot of that stuff in your movies and the waiting list and uh, did you kiss someone or kiss did anyone did you kiss anyone yeah sorry I get that one no that's okay Is that, what's the correct grammar is it anyone you're right anyone I, so, I don't know yeah. <laughs> sorry <laughs> but you have these moments right off the bat where you see the characters and um, because it is comedy they, they do something that even something funny is enough for you to be like Okay, I buy into these characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for instance, the, the one that got me the best was uh, Audrey Walker. Was her name mm-hmm. right? Her, yeah. So her pregnant character in the waiting list, <laughs> where she, you know, is getting ready, leaving the kids, and she's pregnant, and she uh, gets in the car, oh, and yeah. then she turns to the camera and she says to herself, "Fucking kids." Yeah. <laughs> it's like to me that was so funny. <laughs> I mean, it's funny because I think everyone remembers being a kid where you'd go and play in a car and turn on the radio really loud and turn on the windshield wipers and you know do all that stuff because it's fun and nothing's working but you're just playing with knobs and then you know now you know zoom ahead to when you're a parent and now you're the person getting in that car to just you know get away for a little bit and all of a sudden things the music's music's blasting windshield wipers are going you know anyway so you have those moments do you have one uh, in your personal life that you can remember as um, early on you have like did you save a cat ever? Have you ever saved a cat? Have I ever saw? I have a cat that sometimes I plan on murdering because we have a very <laughs> antagonistic relationship. He tries to like wake me up early and claws my lip to wake me up, which works surprisingly <laughs> well. Um, I don't know. In terms of uh, this is a hard question for a lot of people. I'm actually surprised. Like I, I've asked this of other people, and it's it stumps them a lot because like. Wait a minute. Do I have something that I can show people that they like me? No, it's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, that's what I'm trying to figure. Like, what's the question? Because I haven't read the book, so I'm trying to figure out. Is the question essentially, um, you know, what's something that you've done that's, I don't know, sort of grounded you or made you like this? Were you bullied? Yeah. Do you have anything that do you have anything that sympathetically or empathetically an audience can right now and go? Oh, I like this guy, Mike Vogel. <laughs> As opposed to know. me, where I, I had another interview where I said, I bullied a kid, and then the, then nobody, I was the antagonist. I was, <laughs> I was, the, I was the bad guy. Yeah. Um, 
I don't know. In general, I've, um, and I think a lot of this probably stems more from not trying to be a, you know, a great human, but just, you know, I, I try to be more out of insecurity, but it's like, I just try to be nice to people in general, because I know there's been times like if people haven't been nice to you, you know how it feels. And, um, I think that there's, you know, in, in my early childhood, you know, when I was really young and we moved the first time from rural, you know, Illinois to more of the suburbs, it was like for a while it was really rough. You know, it's like we used to get in fights every day, my brother and I. And, um, and so I know what it's like to be, you know, the kid that, you know, you, you get picked on, then you start fighting back as well. Um, so it's, it's tough. And you realize, you know, when you're a kid, you can always put yourself in that position of just like, or as, as an adult, you put yourself in your position as a kid. It's like, oh, I know it, it's rough. So everyone's kind of going through their own thing. You can't really understand um, where someone's at in the moment without understanding where they've been before that. So right. I, I think I try to be nice to people more just almost, you know, I, I know what it's like to, you know, to feel picked on. Having said that, I've definitely had my fair share of picking on siblings and things like that and, and, and being mean to people. But I think that there's also a amount of, um, you know, regret in that, too. And it's like that comes also from that same insecurity of, like, you know. I got. I, I think I have a save the cat moment for you, but I'll, I'll share it later. Yeah. Here. So okay. for you. For me. You don't even know it, but I, I don't even know it, it. That's good. So. So people have to save the cat moment. So we have the ordinary world. We know where the story starts, what the rules are. Then the protagonist has the save the cat moment where the audience goes, okay, I buy in this character. I'm going to follow them through the story. And then the inciting incident happens. Mm -hmm. Something or the, what they call in, um, like Joseph yeah. Campbell, the but first threshold. So do you remember like a, a moment in time where you're like, I think I would want to be a artist filmmaker? Um, it's you know it's funny because the the book that I know of that talks about inciting incident is the Robert McKee story one the one that everyone knows. Yes, um, that's where I stole it from. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, but the, what's interesting about that is because I would actually use that book as an inciting incident almost. Um, when I told you earlier, I was like traveling around a lot and you know doing video things for a big company. I. Um, there was one time I was in London and it was like, you know, I was having a blast. It was fun. I love London. It's great. But it was that same thing of like, something's missing. And I had a little bit of time. And I was like, um, you know, I've always wanted to write a screenplay. I don't know how to do it. I've written things before. I've written, you know, longer novels and short stories and stuff. But I've never written a screenplay. And I know that there's like a format. There's like a, you know, so I was almost looking for like a format manual, like indent, you know, 50 characters or, you know, something. So I, I went to a bookstore in London and um, was looking at the screenplay books. And that one really struck me because it was like, it's talking about story, the structure of story. And it's talking about, you know, that you kind of flip through it and there's diagrams and stuff. So it looked kind of textbooky almost in a way. Um, and, I, and I really liked it. And I'd never, I'd taken a lot of writing and creative writing classes um, in college, but this seemed much more like all right, here's the structure. We're identifying the actual structure of what's happening in movies, which is a very you know, specific kind of writing. Um, so I was like, all right, I'm going to get this book. Um, and this is before you know, adaptation and all that, where, <laughs> where right. you kind of see the, the, the version of him. Um, Thank you. Sorry, I haven't paid the bill yet. Sorry. I, I will pay you. <laughs> what's your name? Brenda. Brenda, okay. Come see Brenda at the uh, JM Cafe. <laughs> Um, 
So I was in uh, the bookstore and, and got this book and read it. And it, it was definitely this thing that I felt like, why didn't I, why didn't I read a book like this earlier? Like that's, that's the only one I've tried to read a few other screenwriting books. And I, I always stop after a chapter or two because I start reading them and they make me want to just sit down and write. I'm like, why am I reading this? I should be writing something. Um, but that one really struck me because it gave, it, it, it shows there are things that happen. You know, there are those inciting incidents and there's these reversals and, and just thinking about a scene, you know, they always talk about, you know, ending at the most dramatic moment and things like that. It's like, oh, I never really thought about, you know, I, I, I've seen a million movies, but I never really thought about the actual structure of them. Um, there can be a danger sometimes too, like, you know, you read too many screenwriting books and you start to kind of come out with formulaic, like, all right, we have to hit this note, we have to hit this moment at this page. Um, but I think it's really helpful if you're like me and your mind's kind of disorganized and you, just, you, know, you want to tell a story and you don't, you're not thinking about how or why or, you know, it's just like, I want to tell a story. Um, so it's nice to have that structure in place. I think it's helped out a lot. So for me, that was kind of an inciting incident of, um, you know, doing, doing something waking, like, yeah. all right, you know, it, it's almost like the universe meets you halfway. I love that saying because it's, you know all right, I'm going to actually go and I'm going to get this book and I'm going to read it. And then having done that, it's like, all right, now I'm going to take what I've learned and I'm going to write something. And I wrote a couple of bad screenplays before I wrote, you know, The Waiting List. And that's just kind of how it works, you know. But, like, you have to kind of take those initial steps to um, to put the effort into it and not just dream, you know. You have you have to actually take action in, in, as well as having big dreams. So, so yeah, you, you answered it because usually after the inciting incident, um the other thing in storytelling is they talk about uh, the mentor, the wizard, the wise mm-hmm. wizard, Obi-Wan Kenobi. Yeah, you know, yeah. like, so there's usually a mentor that leads the protagonist through the first threshold or through the journey before the, that mentor has to die. You know? and, then the, yeah. and the protagonist has to you know, assume the responsibility on him, himself, for himself. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have a mentor or have any mentors that... I've had mentors, maybe not like ones that fit that... Um maybe not for filmmaking I, I guess I've had mentors in other ways um, that I've sort of applied to filmmaking like people that sort of get me to think um, you know bigger picture one of them is uh, you know a producer that actually worked on the waiting list um, his name's Nat Robinson he definitely I've learned a lot from him over the years and it, um, very creative person but also very business minded very um, able to think through how other people think about things you know I, sometimes I get focused and see it in my world and he's he can look at it you know from a, a distance as well um, so that helps me to be able to do that you know not just what what's interesting to me about this which is a very important question but is what interests me about this also going to be interesting to other people um, and I think that's true you know whether you're making a movie whether you're making an app or a game or anything you know restaurant um are other people going to like this too um so i i think i've had mentors in that way i think in terms of, uh, of the film um you know making movies and you know transmedia stuff um it's just kind of like all right i'm just going to go full i'm going to take everything i've learned prior to this you know things i've learned from mentors and and just apply it and just go so that's cool so we're going to dive into a little bit of like we kind of merged together, but you have two mm-hmm. features, and I don't want to like gloss over it because they're really good. Oh, thank like, you. I, they're really enjoyable and they're funny, and it's it's well put together. Like it's there's there's not like um, a lot of spaces where you're like, oh come on, you know. It's it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's 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 tight. You know, the the first one, the premise. I can't believe it's actually a true thing because I was listening to that, but I, yeah. I 
knowing what the, the premise of the waiting list is, waiting for, you know, sleeping over a school to get your first spot in for registration for a preschool for your kids not even born yet or something, yeah, whatever yeah. it is. But the definitely can relate to that in certain places. And you did it. And it was really, I love the fact that it was like pretty much takes place in the school. And um, I'm a big fan. And that's what I'm trying to teach here and, and uh, or help other filmmakers out in Film Trooper is like those classic movies that all take place in like one location, yeah. but then really force you creatively to get a good story out. And you did it with like waiting list and you did it with your next film. Uh, did you kiss anyone? Mm-hmm. And, but I want to ask you the experiences of when you made your first film, like you obviously go high and low, but can you share anything like of a personal accomplishments of uh, just for anybody who hasn't made a film yet to be like, what does it feel like? Yeah. So the waiting list, uh, the first one I made, I'll talk about that one because that's sort of like my first experience. And I, I, I had um, never made a feature before, obviously. Like I, I'd never really even made a short. I made a short a long time ago. It was like shot on VHS kind of thing. So I almost don't even count it. It was fun to make, but it was like, you know, it was like 10 years before that. Um, and the only thing I'd really done is, um, you know, after I took, after, you know, reading that book and everything, I actually did a short where I used... Um, a video game, uh, Grand Theft Auto, and a Texas speech engine, and I, you know, I didn't know any actors. Um, I didn't. I, I wasn't sure if I could do it. I just kind of wanted to do this on the side, on my own. So I just used. I just kind of manipulated the characters on the video game and did a Texas speech engine, and you know, made a little short movie that way, and it was really fun. Um, and that was, you know, a this while like ago. This is like way prior. This is like 2004. The Halo like, world. Yes, the machine, it, machine, it was like yeah. uh, the what is it, red and blue or yeah, whatever. Right. That was that was just coming out, and I was like, oh, maybe people like this too. But I didn't like have a series. It was just like yeah. a one-time thing. Um, but um, but it was, you know, it was sort of like that was my only experience prior to that. So there's just stuff, you know, I, I studied video technology um, in school, you know, in terms of like how things, the technology of how it works, but I'd never really had taken like, um, you know, cinematography class. So I had a, a guy who, I've, who I met who had that experience and it was great. Um, so he was able to fill in a lot of that. Um, and, you know, there was, he knew someone who knew, who, you, know, you, you start to meet people and you kind of get tapped into their networks too. So he knew someone who, did audio, um, and so he kind of had some stuff that he could bring to the, the table too, um, and it just kind of grows out of there. And then so once you get certain people involved, then it's like, all right, we have to get good actors for this. You know, we have to find people, and people recommend people. Um, did you have like um, a casting process, or so what we did is we just cast. Um, I did a, a post on Craigslist, which I just thought, well, I, you know, I didn't know anywhere else to, to do it at the it's time. A good place so to start. Like, I'll just start there. <laughs> And we did it. Um, I just rented a room from the Northwest Film School because I was like, I don't want to do this in my house. That seems totally sketchy, but I want to have it, you know, somewhere. And I called around to different places. And um, how much and they did have it a cost? Room. By the way, I'm just curious. It was. I think it was ninety dollars for. I don't know how long we had it for, but it was a certain amount. It was just sort of like, all right, this is going to be the cost of finding good actors. Like, you know, I want to make sure that it seems legitimate that we we're thinking this through and in that level of professionalism will you know hopefully pass through the rest of the production is what that's the tone you want to set like we're not just trying to you know right we, we, we want to make this economically but we want to also make it fun and comfortable for everyone um, so we had a we had casting and you know we're casting for five roles so there's a lot of people coming in and out that day um, it's the first time I'd ever done it uh, first time I'd ever been in an audition or auditioned anyone so <laughs> but it was really good. Like I, I sort of know, 
uh, I feel like I'm a quiet director. Like I sort of know what I want. Um, and I can, it takes me a little bit sometimes to realize, okay, what I just saw, you know, this is how you should do it differently. So, it, you know, without saying, do it this way, follow my cue and do it exactly the way I'm saying it. But, you know, really just kind of saying, you know, imagine like you're upset about something, you know, give, giving the direction that way to sort of tap into it. Um, and auditions are actually a fun way to, for you as a director to sort of get those skills going. You see someone do a take and you want to be able to say, maybe it's not perfect. Maybe it's not what you had in mind. So you have to sort of practice, you know, can you do it a different way where you do it this way? Um, and that's what directing is too. So the audition is good for the actor, but it's also good for the director too, to sort of practice those skills before you actually get on set. Um, have you ever read the book, uh, directing actors? No, so I should. There's one great takeaway I got from that book was, um, when you're giving a direction to an actor, um, Spielberg had this problem when he made the movie Always with, um, uh, oh God, what's her name? The, the woman from a uh, piano who won the Oscar. Holly Hunter. Yeah. Holly Hunter. So Spielberg has a huge like film vocabulary, like where he can reference things. So mm-hmm. his, he had a directing style of like, I want you to play like Bogart did in this movie. And, mm-hmm. and so Holly Hunter was a challenge for him because she had no film reference. Mm-hmm. So he was like, oh wow. And it, it taught him a lot. That movie probably was his least, you know, popular or whatever, but mm-hmm. it was for a director for himself that taught him a lot because he needed to relate to an actor who has, he can't use the bag of tricks of, like, um, you know, old film uh, references. And so the interesting thing about that book was that little uh, a phrase, something as simple as, can you perform, like, oh, this scene, I need you to deliver it as, like, you're excited just as if you just found out you got casted opposite Johnny Depp. Mm-hmm. Like, even though you're drinking this cup of coffee, you need to be so excited as if it's this other thing. And so it allows the actor to get outside their head in the performance and see what they're, what they're doing as a metaphor because you give them a direction that they can latch on to. Yeah. And I, it's, I, after reading that book, I tried it when I was mentioning the film project I was working on and we had auditions because some of the actresses, I need them to go this ridiculous over the top mm-hmm. and you could tell they were sort of like you might write in the script it's like this over the top you know reaction drinking coffee you know they do it but there's like it's not they're not delivering it and then I yeah. gave them that one simple note and I'm all the actresses were like whoop like it yeah. was out of control because you realize you know and she knows that what they're really doing is as if somebody just told them like you're in the next like J.J. Um, Abrams movie yeah. you know something like you know, something that an actor can latch onto as opposed to like you know can you go bigger can you go yeah. bigger yeah and I think you know I actually when I when I was doing the waiting list my first one I would ask the actors you know sometimes like not not on set but later um, you know we'd be driving back from location and I remember asking one of them uh, Bryce Front Somerville and I just said you know like what, you know what is there anything I should be doing different you know you've worked with more directors <laughs> and this is my first one like what what's different and he kind of said you know, I'm paraphrasing him, but it's kind of like what you were talking about. I said, I can't, I can't do an emotion. Like you can't say, okay, okay, act happy, act sad, or whatever. But it's more of um, acting is, you know, based on an action. He has to be doing something. So, um, you know, if you want to create tension, it's sort of like, you know, instead of being sad, it's almost like instead of saying be sad, you have to say something like don't let yourself cry. Like you're, you're going to fight. You, you don't want this person that you're acting in the scene with to see you cry in the scene or 
or you, you know, the opposite or something. So it has to be sort of an action that they're doing. So they have to be able to act like they're not going to cry, like they're, they're being defiant or proud about it. Or um, it, you can't really do an emotion because emotions mean <laughs> they're, just, they're just cumbersome. Um, but you can, if you can take whatever you're trying to have accomplished in that scene, the emotional element of that scene, and turn it into an action, because the characters are doing something. And, you know, if they're in the scene, they better be doing something or they better be actively you know, avoiding something. Um, I, th- I think that that helps out a lot. It helps them focus and it helps you give the direction of like, you know, you, you, you're going, you know, you're doing it too easily or you need to, you know, back off more. So it helps. I think, you know, acting, it's called acting for a reason. So you right. always have to think of what's the action involved. So. Very cool. Yeah. So, the, um, there we go. Some good old directing tech, uh, tips. <laughs> <laughs> so, you finished these two movies, like you, you, we were talking um, earlier. I will say, sorry, I, oh. I, I will say that the, the standby for every director is like, all right, that was perfect, let's do it better. <laughs> and I, I, still, I still think that's true. I think you have to say that sometimes too, and I think every actor has probably heard that a million times, but that's, um, someone was just saying, acting's the only um, thing where you can do a job and someone says, that's perfect, let's do it again. <laughs> so, I like that too. Yeah, I just or like one for me, just one more, for, one for the camera, mm-hmm. one for camera, one for safety, one, more, one, for, safety. Yeah. one for safety, I, I <laughs> one also, for safety. I also edit my own stuff, so I'm always like trying to think of the editor side of it. Like, well, the editor would want at least three more options, you know. So I think I drive people crazy sometimes, but yeah. Right, right. That totally makes sense. So I'm like fascinated because we were talking a little bit uh, prior to re-recording here, or getting the recorder started about so you finished your movies so you know and you put you had them in some film festivals you put them out uh, a premiere here in mm-hmm. Portland um, I want to back up real quick so you had uh, the waiting list premiere at the Hollywood Theater the yeah the local premiere here was at the Hollywood Theater and uh, Did You Kiss Anyone was at the Baghdad now what was the difference between to- both theaters just out of curiosity because I was thinking about um, going with the Hollywood Theater but I, uh, we screened at the Hollywood Theater before they put the new seats in and before they, um, you know, the new marquee and all that stuff. But the, I, I, I do love the Hollywood Theater a lot. I think it's a great, low, um, a, a great venue for that kind of stuff. It can be a little bit tricky. Um, I don't know if you've seen that video about Sandy Boulevard. There's like a, if you just look up Sandy Boulevard trailer, uh-huh. Sandy is like for me the worst street in the world. Like I hate it. <laughs> um, yes. So, that's the only downside to it but I love what they're doing there like where it's just film it's film stuff but they're also adding in um, events and they're trying to make it more than just movies you know Um, like where there's a film and there's an event going on simultaneously and that's the kind of thing that we tried to do there where it wasn't just a screening we also had um, you know there's little things going on like a raffle and there were um, I forget what other stuff that we did for that one but um, you try and make it more than just a movie because you, you, people well, can good. go see a movie anywhere, you know? So you have to really add a lot of elements to a screening to, to make it interesting. Well, that's what they actually they teach um, entrepreneurs, of anybody jumping in. It's like to hold an event, a local community event, uh, just, to, just to get to know people in the community yeah. or whatever. And they talk about that from filmmakers now, like to make it a unique experience where, you know, like I'll catch a movie on my iPhone when I'm on the plane you know Mm -hmm. as opposed to that reality is like no 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 if you come to the live event 
not only will we get to see the movie, there's something else tied to it that is unique and only uniquely to that experience. Mm-hmm. And that's what they do to you. So that's a good idea that you, you had that event uh, or an event sort of a plan around it. And it really is fun. like, you know, the bigger one that I did, um, we, when we screened Did You Kiss Anyone at the Baghdad, uh, we had a lot more people, um, you know, it's a bigger venue. So I was really nervous about that. And it's like, all right, we really have to try and fill this up. So there's a little more promotion involved and getting people interested. Um, and, and we did. It was like, I was so impressed. And it, one of my biggest disappointments in life is probably that I don't have a picture from the stage of the crowd. I think I tried to take one and it was just like, because of the lights, you can't see anything. That's a big um, theater. But it's like, it's a big theater. And I left. So I, I was kind of sitting in front because um, I came up, you know, before we had some people tell some stories um, before, like a storytelling piece of it. Um, then I came up and kind of introduced it. And then... Um, it went up and then I, I just kind of went up to the, the back room and I started going up to where the, the projection booth and um, and I was in the balcony and it was like, you know, the whole bottom level was full of people and the balcony was full of people. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Like, I, I don't know all these people. Like, I, you know, they know, they must know someone here or something, but it was amazing to be like, there's a full theater of people watching a movie nope. I made and it was just awesome. Like, that's why you do it, you know? First of all, that is amazing because we're talking here like the Baghdad Theater is, is large it's yeah. large it's like what three four three hundred seats three hundred it's, something like it's that it's big it's, I mean, for me I don't know how many people but it's like when you're standing in the very very back in the balcony and you look down like you see you know heads Just, everywhere it's like there's a lot of people there you know so do you have any idea how how you're able to pull that off I think a lot of it was just, um, you know, word of mouth and kind of promoting things um, on Twitter. There was a lot of people in the movie, too. Like, so there's a lot of cast members in the movie. Um, so I think that helps you kind of tap into their networks as well. I mean, that, yeah, I, I didn't think about that when I was doing it, but it was like, oh, that's kind of nice that, you know, if you have like a movie with two people, you kind of get their networks. If you have like, you know, 10 or 15 people in the movie, that there's a lot more family members and friends who are going to want to come see that. And for a local screening, that's, that's really important, you know? Um, and so I, I think that was one thing that helped and just kind of promoting it. Um, I think we may have done some, uh, promoting, I can't remember if we did Facebook promoting for that or if it was just for the, um, the festival screening, but little ways like that too. Like you try and find people who are interested in independent film, um, and you want to let them know about it that way too. So, and it did get mentioned. Um, that one actually got mentioned in the Mercury and um, was it the Oregonian? Yeah, Mercury and Oregonian. It was mentioned in their in their um, things, and it was like favorably reviewed. You know, they had good things to say about it. So, um, I think that absolutely helped as well too. People like that validation of like, what's this movie? I've never heard of it. Oh, it's you know, someone in the Mercury said it was good. Okay, I'll go see it. Um, that's interesting. I mean, and then you had it in film festivals, both films. Mm-hmm. What, what's your takeaway from the film festival experience for other filmmakers? You know, I got spoiled because the first film festival I was in was the Phoenix Film Festival, and um, I heard that's it, pretty good. It's an amazing festival. They are awesome there, and it, you know, it's like the, it's what you picture when you want to be in a film festival you know they flew me there they gave me a hotel there's like a shuttle that takes you from the hotel to like the venues they have parties um this is for the waiting list this is for the waiting list this is my first one so this is like pretty heady stuff because it's like i just you know filmed a movie first movie you know no money going to a film festival and it was just amazing an amazing experience you know you get to do the q a's after which i love doing them um it's really fun and 
that thing. So, so it was, it was a great, it definitely spoiled me. Um, there's a lot of other, you know, I've been in a lot of other film festivals I've really enjoyed too. There's a lot of great ones locally, you know, the Columbia Gorge and Salem and Eugene and stuff like that. But they're, um, the, the Phoenix one seems like it's, they really design it around, the, the trick is to find film festivals where they're focused on the filmmakers. Um, a lot of film festivals, so you sort of have like that top level that everyone wants to get into and that probably no one's going to get into unless you have famous <laughs> people, you know, the Sundances and stuff like that. Then you have all of these Pass other... alumni or somebody who has some sort of connection. Yeah, yeah, you really need that. And there's a movie that actually played at uh, the Phoenix Film Festival called um, Official Rejection. Yes, uh, by great Paul movie, Osborne. by the way. Yeah. yeah, and that's a great summary of like, everyone has this dreams about what the film festival experience is going to be like, and here's what it's actually, here's what the chances are, you know, statistically, what your experience is going to be. And not to be like the crusher of dreams or anything, but that's just kind of how it is. It's like, there are a lot of film festivals out there, so you have to find ones that are going to be best for your movie and that focus on filmmakers. Um, I think one of the secrets of um, the film festival world is that a lot of film festivals are done almost like the chamber. I don't know if it's through the chamber of commerce, but it's like it's designed to get people to come to the town and spend money, you know, and it's also to sort of show, hey, we have this, you know, arts and cultural thing going on where we have a film festival, but they're not necessarily interested in... Um, in the filmmakers or in building that community um, it's just sort of like we need to show some films in our film festival so people will you know we can get corporate sponsors from the town so, so there is sort of like this weird and they're not all like that but there are definitely you know if you make films eventually you'll come across one that you just feel like what I, what, what just happened there you know and I think that that's one of those um, things you have to look out for the right. Phoenix one was I said I got spoiled it was it wasn't like that at all it was like such a great experience they you know I I'm still movie, in touch with people, you know, that I that I've met there. So. Oh, cool! In the movie Official Rejection, he he shares that experience in the Phoenix, doesn't he? I yeah, think, yes. he. I think it actually premiered. I don't know if it was actually the the released cut. I know it was a rough cut, but he showed that movie there uh, for the first time, and he talks about in that movie how Phoenix is such a great festival right. as well, and it really is. I mean, you anyone that's ask any filmmaker who's shown a movie there, and they'll be like, "Yeah, that was awesome. Love it." Um, Wait, before we get started, you have a sun coming on your face. Oh. If you want to switch over. I'm okay. I might take this shirt. off yeah. now. I didn't want to see, yeah. say, <laughs> you know what, this, this morning sunlight beaming in your <laughs> eyes here. So, yeah, that actually that's a great, you know, advice or just a little tidbit. Because when I was at the American Film Market a couple of years ago, um, Jonathan Wolf, who puts on this, pro, um, he heads up the... Like Independent Film Producers Intelligence Association as well, or Motion Pictures and Television Association. So he had the symposium. It's like mm -hmm. a small group, like 50 people. It's my first time at uh, AFM, the, the market. And he just comes out and says, hey, so you've got a film. You know, don't take it to a film festival. And this, at the time, it was like, what? What are you talking about? It's everything that in print tells us that's what yeah. we're supposed to do. He says, hey, let's just get something straight. Just like there's only a handful of film festivals that are that have film markets tied to, tied to them. The Cannes Film Festival is the festival, and then there's the film market. The same people that go to the film market, the Cannes Film Market, are here at American Film Market. We mm -hmm. just don't have a film festival tied to the American Film Market. Because then you have Berlin and uh, uh, Toronto and like Sundance, of course, but everything else. You know, it's like, he goes, maybe Tribeca and Southwest, South by Southwest. He goes, but let's be, you have to understand that all film festivals are a cultural event. 
They're mm-hmm. only there to support the community culture. And yeah. so, and then you blow your wad basically for showing your film. And if uh, you lose that mysterious sort of markability, that uh, scarce commodity that you could use when you're trying to sell it to a market, you know, because if it looks good on package, then you'll get a better, higher sale if you just come to the market directly mm-hmm. and sell it as opposed to trying to expose it too soon at the, mar- at the film festival. Hmm. And so there is something to be said about like, sort of the scarcity mentality when everything has this abundance mentality. You know? mm-hmm. well, obviously, it has to be good to some extent. But that was a huge eye-opener of like, wow, okay, I, I get it. Yeah, it yeah. makes sense. Like, when you really stop and think about it, like, okay, yeah, I get it. It makes sense and stuff like that. But, um, but regardless... It sounds amazing. You had a great what it should be, like you said, the yeah. Phoenix Film Festival, treating filmmakers um, wonderful. Like you just have those moments of like, you know what? You did all this hard work. Let's just enjoy this right here. And like you said, you made you're still in contact with a lot of friends, yeah, and other filmmakers from that experience. And I think that you know what you were just saying about the film festivals too is. Yeah, I think it's true. And, and I do think I don't want to sound like I'm ragging on film festivals because that is. Uh, it's a fun, important part of making a film. Like, you definitely need to show it in front of an audience, you know, either your own screenings or film festival screens. That's, that's why you're doing it in a lot of cases, because it, it's so fun. It's so rewarding to do that. Um, but at the same time, I kind of feel like the goal these days is really how do you find your audience, you know? So, like, is your audience necessarily in a movie theater at 3 o'clock in the afternoon? Um, how do you find that audience? And the crazy thing is there's so many different ways to find people now. Like you can, um, you know, the, the thing I'm doing currently is like, you know, I, I, I'm not actually on Facebook officially, like as a, as a human being, but I am on there to advertise mo- my movies and transmedia stuff. And um, it's so insanely helpful to try and find the people that you want to find um, in terms of targeting. I mean, Facebook, you realize once you start to set up an ad, you realize how the whole thing is just this big advertising machine that is so useful because um, let's say you're doing a movie or you're, you know, come up with a web series or something and you want to target people who like, let's say the Guild, that's a popular web series, I think. So um, you want to, people that would like the Guild are probably like your thing. Um, It'd be really expensive to, you know, advertise on a website that they might have. I'm not sure if they have that, but you know, right, right. there's a lot of ways to go. Or what you can do is just find people who like that. Um, you want to you want to show them, and you can you know do it based on age range or whatever too, or or geographic location. Um, but you can really target like based on things that people like. So if you figure out what those things are, uh, you know, even before you make your movie, like all right, I want to make a uh, I want to make a. Um, movie that targets people who like this kind of thing. You gotta see like what the market is like that for there. And in some cases it might be too big, you know, it's like a Judd Apatow movie. Like there's probably a lot of people that like that that won't like your movie. So you really have to f- focus on what it is that um, that your two things have in common and kind of go for that piece of it. So it might be, you know, in, in my case there's like a TV show that that's out that's about cloning. So it's like, alright, I think everyone that w- that likes that TV show might have an interest in in my transmedia thing, which is also about cloning. So um, how do I get that in front of them? And it's just a nice way to be able to, you know, advertise to your core audience. Um, That's not as sexy as a film festival, but honestly, at a film festival, you know, a lot of the audience is going to be 
maybe people that aren't your target audience. I, I know I've noticed uh, there's you know a lot of senior citizens um, at film festival screenings, and that's not the target audience that I'm making for the movie. Nothing you know against that, but it's just like a movie about you know preschool enrollment. Um, that's not really going to connect with them necessarily. So. How do you find those people? Um, there's so many ways to find them online. You know, people are liking things all the time and sharing things. You can use that information, like the social graph information, to find your audience. Um, and I think that that's something that it would be great. Someone should come up with a, a more efficient way to tap into that for filmmakers too. Like find your audience this way. Um, but um, but there are a lot of stuff right now. You know, whether it's you know Facebook ads or. Um, just even like hashtags on Twitter, if it's that kind of thing, like horror or you know sci-fi or something. It's just a way of finding people who share common interests. Um, yeah, you know, it's, it's um, you've hit the nail on the head, which is again what they teach like uh, entrepreneurs quite a bit is find your like I said, find your audience, find your customers. You know, mm -hmm. they they mention that there's really two reasons people go online. Or why is Google is so powerful is because. You're going online because you have a problem or a pain mm -hmm. that you're looking, you're searching for a specific keyword search or asking, a, literally asking a question. Mm -hmm. How do I fix, you know, my um, my tire hub or something? Whatever mm -hmm. it might be, very specific. Google has to try to find the best content that people have provided to match those uh, search queries, you know, mm -hmm. and because. So you think if you're supplying like a, a solution. And the other thing they go to online for is to be entertained. So if you can entertain and then also solve a problem or fulfill a need, you know, oh, you have kids, you probably mm -hmm. you ever watch that uh, cartoon robots, you know, no. oh. blue skies robots. No. It's like the, well, I know just, it though. Yeah. The, the whole premise of that movie is like, you know, find a need, fill a need, you know, mm -hmm. that's the type of thing. Yeah, yeah. So, it's fascinating. So what techniques uh, did you have this concept in mind when you, now we're going to switch gears and get into your transmedia project, uh, Friendnik. Uh, and um, so did you have an audience in mind when you created this? Or was this, I think I remember you reading that uh, Audrey uh, Walker, your actress has been in the last mm -hmm. few films, called you up and said, hey, what are we making something new? And yeah. you're like, well, I've got this idea. So tell, tell us about how uh, uh, Friendnik I can't. I'm screwing Frenic, up. Yeah. Frenic, yeah. Um, so a lot of it came out of being a little frustrated after making two feature films, and uh, not frustrated, but just sort of like being exhausted, I guess, of um, do I want to spend another year and a half? You know, Digikiss anyone took almost two years to make. There was all these scheduling things. I felt like it was a full-time job just to schedule people. Um, and so it was a little bit of frustration of like, all right, how do I... If I'm going to put all this effort into it, I want it to last longer than, you know, a film festival run or a screening at the Baghdad or something. So I want, I want something that I can continue to add content to so you can kind of build an audience slowly. Like if I could take that audience that was at the Baghdad that day and continue to grow it, you know, as the story continued, that would have been amazing. But it's a feature film, so it ended. Everyone kind of went home and story's over and everyone remembers, hey, that was really fun. Um, I would love, you know, as a filmmaker, I'd love to be able to... I have that audience keep them engaged, keep it going. And I felt like there was no good way to do that with feature films. Um, coincidentally, right around the same time, um, something I'd done with my first movie was Ustream had just come out and they had the ability to do like, you know, live video streams and chat. And I did one of those and um, 
and it was really fun. And you know, the the casting crew got involved, and there weren't that many people there. But there was someone from Twitter that we mostly talked about biking and stuff like that. But she she was in on that, and she kind of was interested in you know the movie and the interactive part. Um, so like two years later, she's writing uh, an article for PBS Media Shift, and she her name's Amanda Lynn Costa, and she said, "Hey, do you remember when you did that thing? Do you want to answer some questions about that?" And I was like, "Oh, sure, I'd love to." So she asked me a bunch of questions, and I always like to think I'm really, you know, savvy and on top of things technology-wise. But she was sort of like, um, you know, are you doing anything on for mobile? Um, any mobile plans? And my initial response was like, no, of course not, because no one wants to see a, a feature film on a mobile device, you know. Right. Um, and then I thought about it. I was like, well, what what do you want to see? Because that is a huge opportunity. So it, it almost was like the spark of just. You know, I, I never trust the easy answer. So it's like, all right, what what is that look like? You know, and in my mind, I started to think about all the different things that you like to do on a mobile device. You like to play games. You like to maybe read if it's an iPad. Um, you like to you know watch videos. So how do you combine all that stuff into one experience? And and I started to realize, well, that's how you can really tie that continual audience, you know, engagement piece of it. Um, you get the audience and you just keep releasing more content and maybe some of it's a video, some of it's a story, some of it's, you know, a website. Um, you know, parts of Frenic are just websites that look like uh, real websites. Like there's lifeidentical.com and it looks like a corporate website and it never gives away that it's part of Frenic. It just is like, hey, we make nanotechnology and it kind of has a vaguely evil feel about it. Like, wait, what are they doing with all this DNA stuff and right. this like uh, limb regeneration and stuff like that? Um, but I think that's part of the fun of it too is just finding, you know, you can tell a story anywhere and you should be, able, you should be telling a story everywhere. Um, you shouldn't have to be in a theater, darkened theater to, to access it. Um, so I really started to think about like how are, what are all the different ways that people consume entertainment, consume stories. Um, and I just thought, I have to figure out a way for my story to be able to, to transport to anything, you know, whether it's a website, whether it's fiction, you know, an ebook, a Kindle, um, an iPad, iPod, even like an Android, there's a web version. I know it's not an app, but, you know, you should be able to pull up your Android phone, go to phrenicworld.com, just see it and, you know, get the experience. Um, and so that's... Yeah, yeah that, that was sort of my goal behind that as opposed to a feature where it's like put all the effort into it show it in a few film festivals and then it's over what's the next one I didn't want to get in that rut I sort of wanted I love the binge viewing thing that you see on Netflix or you know, just burn through something you just want to consume everything related to that that you can and then you wait eagerly for the next season to come out so kind of wanted to create that on a smaller scale um, where it's just kind of something and hopefully my goal would be you know I have push notifications in the app now so when there's something new I send a message out and just kind of say hey this is what's happening so ideally I would love you know my dream is that this would become part of people's lives in a way in a very small you know passive way of like maybe when you're riding the bus into work or you're um, you know have a few spare minutes you know at night or something it's like oh there's something new let me read this new story or let me watch the new video and you follow it over a long period of time. It's a story that's told over, you know, a couple of years, and rather than ninety minutes. It's um, very cool. So for those that don't know, you got to check it out. You can find it on the App Store. It's the Frednick app, spelled P H R E N I C, yeah. and is this crazy, creepy doll face yeah. is like the icon. But when I got it, I remember it was very clever because all the videos 
like you see it, it's um, the short. It's like two minute videos. Mm -hmm. So, but not only that, but it's right off the bat. I love the storytelling aspect of it in a short, the short frame because uh, I'm not gonna give anything away. But like you know, Audrey Walker, her character says, "I'm gonna kill my husband in seven days." Mm -hmm. And so you know, you look, you have seven episodes or whatever it is. And so, uh, and it always leaves in a cliffhanger at the end, yep. two minute cliffhanger. So you go, okay, I can see the, the need to like want to binge watch it. Mm -hmm. So you watch it very, you know, you can get through it very quickly. And then it's like, oh, so now there's a twist. And so season two has this other twist. And the other fella, um, in the new season, the, the older man with the long oh, yeah, beard, yeah. Um, like it, he's nice. missing, like whatever it says, like uh, he's been gone for 22 days. This is recorded like two days before that day or something. So mm -hmm. you know, like it's the countdown aspect of it. It's very clever, and it totally fits the format and the, and the need. And you have all these other wonderful things in the app. And I really want to talk about too, like you know, when you went down this rabbit hole, mm -hmm. like did you? Uh, who was your app developer? How did you build this app? And and yeah. what made you start creating all the other aspects for it? The, the app developer is a guy that I, I knew from the days um, when I was working for the big software company and he kind of did stuff and he just, he left before I did and he just was making his own games. He's got a bunch of games. Um, he sells them under H2 Indie, like H and then the number two Indie. Um, and he's got, a, you know, a lot of games that he does that way. Um, and he's done some instrument ones. He did like a guitar one that's sort of like GarageBand and um, before GarageBand had that style. And so he... He was doing pretty well, and um, he was in Portland. He, he kind of just moves around. He's a nomad a little bit, but he um, he asked me if I had um, the ability to do something in After Effects. Uh, he had this like little globe, like electric orb thing, and I was like, oh yeah, sure, I could do that. And so we were doing that. Then we were meeting up and talking a lot about, um, you know, I was mentioning it'd be really fun to do um, an app that was video, and and I really didn't have it fleshed out at that point. And he was like, oh, that'd be easy. You know, it's like, I, it, if you want, I'll do it. And I was like, oh, okay, great. Um, and I think he got in for more than he bargained for because yeah. <laughs> the initial version of Frenic got rejected from the app store because you're not, one of the guidelines is you're not supposed to have an app that's primarily a video, which I was adding other things in there. There was extras, you know, behind the scene extras and uh, things like that. But um, there was nothing that they would consider interactivity, which is so funny because there, I've, every time I see an app that's primarily video, it's like, oh, here's a feature film that's broken up as an app. It's like, I just, I want to scream. Like, how come you let that one through, you know? But um, I know. I wonder if they let up their guidelines now. I follow um, a lot of these, pot, like, uh, you can get, like, a WTF, Mark Maron's podcast mm -hmm. as an app. Uh, Kevin Smith's whole company, Smodco, yeah. is on these apps and they're essentially just podcasts um, with a few videos or like clicks to their, their it's basically a mobile version of their website you know yeah, yeah. but you're right there's not necessarily a lot of interactivity to it so I think their guidelines have probably shifted a little <laughs> bit you know I think a lot of it depends too on a, if they think that someone I, I think that their goal is to keep garbage and junk out of the app store and that's an admirable thing because I know I have friends that have Androids and it's like oh it's so hard to find you know the good ones um, oh, because they let that. It's just it like you just everything. submit it and you're, you get in. But, um, <laughs> but the nothing against Android. <laughs> um, but I do think that they try to do that. So it's like if you're Kevin Smith, like okay, people are going to download this. If if you know if it were me and I said I want to do you know this same exact thing, they'd be like, well, no one's going to get this. We don't want to have 
you know, a million of you <laughs> doing this, maybe. I don't know if that's their actual thought process, but that's that's what I imagine. Well, first um, of all, kudos to you to getting a Frenic into the app, the app store. That's a well, that's an accomplishment. It, that, that was the piece that I was saying probably took the developer more time than he thought he was going to get into it initially because, um, you know, there was an interactivity component and um, it was, um, you know, we started to add some games to it, which was cool because I didn't think we'd be able to do games. I was looking at, you know, I already had this in mind of doing like choose your own adventure kind of stories and that's kind of interactive. Um, but there's actually a little, you know, mini mobile games like time waster kind of things that he was able to pull together um, and we were able to tie him to the story so it wasn't just like here's a random game you know but it was like alright um, you know for, there's a pill game for instance so um, that's part of the story as well where you know is, is her husband hiding her you know switching her medicine or whatever so there's like a game where you're hiding the pills in a certain amount of time and so we're able to like kind of look at it that way. There's also, I think the one that I'd like the most in a way is the, um, the clone scanner, like where it asks you certain questions. It's kind of inspired by like the Blade Runner test where you get asked a lot of questions to see if you're a replicant or whatever. And that's new. Um, that's just, you just that, launched. We, that was in it, but it was just hidden. And that was the problem. Like there was a bunch of really cool stuff that was all hidden in one button called Story World. So now it's broken out um, games, uh, stories, episodes, and extras. Um, and it just is a little... A cleaner, I think, to kind of navigate between all of them. Um, so it's it, it's good, I think. I mean, it's something to think about when you're if you want to create something transmedia. It's like, what, where are all the different? How do I make this interactive? How do I get people involved? Um, the other thing I'm doing now is trying to get a way where um, anyone can contribute content. You know, because I do think that participatory, uh, participatory media is really important you know um, there's just that thing that infinity launched um, this last week about um, you know you, you basically call a or you put your number in or I think you call a number um, and then they have your phone number of course they're only going to use it for this experience they say but in the movie you know someone holds up a phone and it's your phone number on there that is a recent call and someone in the in the movie calls someone and they're calling you and they're you know you can hear them right right both. So that's like a small example of it, but I do think that people like to be have it personalized and want to be able to maybe participate in something if they want. You know, my um, daughter did that. Um, the Disney show had a show called like Agent Oso. He was mm-hmm. like some kind of yellow beaver. I don't know what he was. Yeah. But the thing where the special agent, like if you would call a certain number, he would call back. Oh, yeah. So that there was, you would put it go online and we would enter our information. And so my daughter would get this call and they give it to her as a recorded message of the character's voice saying, like, well, I don't know how they did it. It's like, hey, Jillian, you're one of my special agents. And she was I just watching her yeah. uh, just hold her the, this, the phone. And she was like, okay, uh-huh, uh-huh. They have this camera. Like, you know it's all recorded, but yeah. what a wacky and wonderful experience in that little, that little bit they, they did. It- and to some extent, I feel like, you know, it's like that's for your daughter. It's like when she gets older, she's just going to expect stories to be personalized to her. She's going to expect that interactivity. So that's kind of interesting. You know, you think about the future. It's like you have to remember to bring all that stuff in because that's just going to be the expectation. People aren't, kids aren't just going to movie theaters and sitting down and watching a movie for 90 minutes. It's like they're having those kinds of experiences. They're having iPad experiences. That's what they're going to want moving forward. You know, they're not going to have the same nostalgia for, you know, a darkened, quiet cinema theater that we do necessarily. So... Right, their, their whole experience is different. I think I had this conversation with a, a friend of mine. We were talking about the the beauty of channel surfing. 
there was a there was a time when you know uh, DVRs weren't around, and so you were just clicking through channels, and like on a Sunday, Saturday afternoon, you would come across some, one of your favorite movies you've seen. That there are certain movies that you would stop half wherever it was in the movie, you stop and just watch the whole way through. Yeah, and there's sort of um, sort of self discovery too. Like, oh, remember these films? And um, I had this whole other conversation about older films. I remember growing up as a kid, we had our our cartoons before we would watch a f- uh, these little snippets of cartoons before we go to school. But part of that was like the Little Rascals and Laurel and Hardy and these, you know, the, obviously the television station was just grabbing whatever content they can and shoving it in for the mm-hmm. early morning, you know, fix for kids. But we were exposed to older media. I always remember being exposed to older films. I mean, yes, there's a channel for old films and stuff like that, but listening to a lot of these young kids, like you know, old films to them, it's like, uh, it's the breakfast club, mm-hmm. you know, like this whole concept of like, what do you mean? Say what's Citizen Kane? And I don't like, you know, I don't mean anything like that. I mean, it's really kind of crazy because there's no self discovery of that on a, on a te- television channel anymore because they have access to everything. Like mm-hmm. unless some really cool hip hipster kid is like unique because he's watching all these uh, Marx brothers movies. It's not like, you know, yeah. you know, it's, I'm watching it like uh, sort of, Film history and media history sort of get squashed a little bit with this. Nothing bad. It's just the way things change. But it's fascinating to watch our kids go through this. Yeah, I think you're right because it's it is. You know, I remember. I feel like when I was a kid, I watched a lot more of Baby Boomer nostalgia TV than I would have wanted to, than I was interested in, because that's just what was on. You know, it's like you get home from school or something, and like I Dream of Jeannie would be on, or Gilligan's Island or something. It's just like. Those shows didn't necessarily, um, you know, they were, you know, 15, 20 years old at the time, but it was just like, that's what they chose to put on because they knew that, you know, adults would like them and maybe kids would like them and um, cheaper than creating new content. And so you kind of just were, it was almost like whatever was thrown at you, that's what you sort of had to live with. And it is great that now you can sort of really focus your interest and say, I'm into science fiction or I'm into, you know, my daughter loves Doctor Who and so based on that she can find other shows that she likes and you know Netflix will tell her you'll probably like this one you know Um, which I think is amazing because it helps you really focus Um, and you know as filmmakers you have to realize that too because where where does the thing that you're creating fit in there because people are going to just focus on the things that they want and things that are similar to that so how do you make sure that what you're doing is similar to like you know it has to be clear is this a you know science fiction is this um, a crime thing, you know, because people that like crime things are going to seek out crime things. People that like um, horror movies are going to seek out more horror movies. So, um, yeah, very it's good specific. and it's bad, you know. First of all, it congratulations. It's a tremendous accomplishment in what you've done with the the, uh, the Friendic world and just the app and how it's growing oh, and watching you. that grow. And it's really quite an accomplishment. And I wanted to, I said I had a save the cat moment for you. Oh, yeah. So it's like, you wrote this blog post of sort of like, kind of your darkest, like a dark, the dark thoughts of, <laughs> of just being a, someone who's an artist. Someone yeah. who has a need to be creative and someone has a need to be expressive. And you were writing in there um, some very honest uh, little bullet points, but was very uh, compelling. Mm. I think I don't know all of them per, uh, by memory, but in, in, yeah, in yeah. a gist, it was something like, you know... I have to come to grips, like, have I created stuff that's that's not, you know, maybe just 
you know, okay or, you know, and mm -hmm. not as great as I think it is or, you know, or, or all this type of stuff and like all these doubts somebody creatively has, but then like the end of it is like, well, you kind of, you just put your shoes on and keep going and yeah. stuff like that. Well, I think part of that was inspired by, well, inspired is a funny word to use, but like, there, I, I, I think I was getting burned out on how everything, you know, I spend a lot of time on Twitter, like looking for articles and just seeing what's going on. And, um, and there's so many things out that are inspirational, but they're inspirational in this. And it's good to be positive inspirational, but I almost felt like I was overdosing on it. You know, it's like the Ted talk thing. It's like, all right, no more Ted talks. Like everyone's, everyone's completely inspired and, you know, enough by Ted talks. We don't need any more. Um, and just sort of these like, hey, this is the greatest thing ever. This is the most amazing thing ever. You know, everyone is, it, there's no sense of scale. There's no sense of like really reflecting. I think there's, it's almost like a drug in a way of like always trying to find the best thing ever every single day. It really wears you out. And that's kind of how these sites get, you know, page views and stuff is declaring, you know, using these big, um, you know, Seven. hyperbolic statements about how right. this is a must see and everything. And I was just really burned out on it. And I was like, well, what inspires me? Like, well, it's, it's not, you know, I, I've, I feel like I generally have a positive attitude. It might not always seem like that to some people, but like I, I, I'm hopeful, I guess, for the future always. And, um, and the things that inspire me are the things that are almost, I don't want to say they're fears, but they're, they're questions, you know? It's just like, I, you know, is this the best? And a lot of them, you know, I listed out, I don't remember what they all are either. But at the time, I was like, okay, these are the things that I'm thinking about right now. And that's why I wrote them down. It's like, um, and, and I think that they're, I think sometimes you have to let yourself think those thoughts of like, you know, what if I'm never going, like if you've never made a film before, which is, you know, at, at one point I remember feeling like this, I want to make a movie. What if I never make a movie? What if I right. live through my life and I don't make a feature? What's that going to feel like? You know, I'm, I, and then at that point, you're like, I'm willing to make myself uncomfortable in other ways to make sure that I make that happen. Um, or, you know, what if I want to do this? Um, you, you have a goal. It's like you, at some point you do have to do, you have to sacrifice a certain level of comfort, you know, whether it doesn't necessarily have to be financial comfort, but just like maybe you're not going to get a lot of sleep. Maybe you're going to have to go in and ask someone if you can use their bar or restaurant uh, for a, a location, you know, and that makes you feel awkward or something. But you just have to kind of get over all that stuff. And you just have to, I think fear can be motivating in a way, you know, like, all right, if, if I don't do this, then I'm going to miss out on this. So there's got to be, you know, there's a reward by making myself uncomfortable and kind of pushing myself outside of my comfort zone. Um, and that's kind of what that blog post was about. It's just like, you know, it's great to be inspired by all these amazing, wonderful things on the internet, but it's also like, I think what centers you and makes you more of a, you know, focuses your own personal uh, passion is just those dark moments of reflecting on it and, all right, how do we get out of this? How do we problem solve our way out of these dark thoughts? So, you know, one of the newest phrases or that I heard just recently that I like quite a bit that I kind of keep reminding myself on a daily basis is, you're never as great as you think you are, and you're never as crappy as you think you are. Yeah. You know, so you're kind of just what you really are is a sort of in between of your own, your own scale. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, for myself, you know, I'm just starting this podcast. Uh, really, in this uh, film trooper has really just been lodged since October first. Mm -hmm. So I have a long way to go to build up an audience. I have a small community on Google Plus, and uh, some people kind of like it being small. Mm -hmm. You know, um, um, I have to yet to really explore Facebook, but I sort of started all the social media stuff at the same time, Twitter, Facebook, 
um, and Google uh, Plus, I knew that everything, I knew after reading a lot what Google Google was trying to do with Google Plus, that sort of stems, that's like the hub. Yeah. Because everything you post there gets part of their search engine. Like mm-hmm. my, my, uh, my little author share, my big fat mug, my picture shows up mm-hmm. through all these little things I share on Google Plus, but none of my real blogs do, you know, because it's not part of the search crawl. Yeah, yeah. But it, I get faster results out of uh, the search engine working through Google Plus. So anyway, so I've, I, I'm watching in the, the, what, it's almost been a month now of the slow growth, you know. But just can, even connecting with you, just like simply being part of the, the Twitter community and, and just asking questions and having feedback, you know, it's a wonderful surprise of life of like, you know, the response. Like you communicate with somebody, oh, hey, cool, want to meet up? I, I love what you're doing, you want to set up? And from my, where I stand, it's like, you know, you've made two features. You've had your premieres here in, in Portland, you've had it in film festivals, you've, and, and then you're you're moving on with this uh, really amazing uh, venture with the the app on Frenic and the transmedia and it's very very impressive and so from like my standpoint you know I'm launching this podcast you know I'm about to launch my feature you have that premiere mm-hmm. and then but but I always like I said like you says having sort of reality to it like I have this thing where it's like I almost want to have an ad for my movie which is it doesn't suck as bad as you think. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, I I, as long as some people come out of it going, yeah, it didn't suck as bad as I thought it was going <laughs> to suck. And then I'm like, yes, That's yeah. I, I did it. You know. But uh, I could look at you and I was like, okay, so you've been writing your blog for like 13 years now, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what, um, what myths can you de- debunk? Because it's this idea of, or, or, or tips you can share with like, the goal is like make it self-sustaining where it's like hey guess what I look at you and I say are you making a full-time living doing uh, this transmedia stuff and your blog because obviously there are people that are making a full-time living on their blogs and stuff like that yeah I'm not so in I've had a blog for a long time but it's always been very much a a personal blog and it's it's kind of adapted over time like for me it's it was for a long time it's been a place to experiment like I actually had a I just realized as I was going through the archives recently I actually had a mobile version of my website in 2002 it was like for Palm 5 and there was like Avant Go so um, and I was able to like in 2004 I could like you know take pictures from my phone and upload it to um, my blog or I, I guess I could update the blog from my phone and I could send the pictures later but um, you know, that's 2004. That was like long before iPhones and everything. Um, and, and so, and even before Twitter. And so for me, it's always been this sort of like playground to sort of experiment with things, either like with technology initially, but also just, um, you know, my own stuff. So it's not like a typical thought leadership kind of blog or something where you're always on task with the same topic. Um, so for me, that's where that stands. Um, I do like a, a sort of like a day job. I'm a creative director at a company, so I kind of do that um, to pay the bills, and I and actually really enjoy it too. But um, but then um, focus on the side projects. And for me, it's nice because I don't have to worry about the commercial concerns for each specific one. So like for the films, I don't have to worry: is there a large enough audience? It's like, all right, this is the story I want to tell right now. Um, you know, I spend, you know, part of the week telling other people's stories for, you know, for work or whatever. And then now it's the time where I can just focus on the one that I want to tell, tell it the way I want to tell it. Um, so it's a nice balance of those things. Um, so I'm definitely a supporter of the day job to support, you know, the dream. 
Um, I know some people are like, no, just throw yourself all into it. But not everyone has the luxury necessarily of doing that. Um, so, um, so I do do that. Um, I, I feel like, you know, there's so many things now. I think if you're, if you're looking, if anyone's looking to, to make, to really, I don't think it was making money, but it really is, you know, building the audience first. And so if you, you know, for like a podcast, what you want to do is, you know, focus on independent filmmaking and, you know, you're doing a great job with that. So it's like people know, all right, if I listen to this podcast, um, who am I going to hear from? What's it going to be? What are they going to be talking about? Um, and you're going to have an audience because there's so many people making films now. Um, and I think it's like a start and it's like, you never know where it's going to bring you. You know, it's like that thing of like the universe meets you halfway. Like it starts off with this, but maybe, you know, you have no idea one year from now what will happen with the podcast or with anything you know with the feature um but you just have to kind of move in the right direction i guess like all right i know this is what i want to do i don't know where this is going to lead but let's take one step that direction and and see where it goes um i think if you're afraid to take that step that's when you sort of wonder how you got where you are you know (laughs) so um so i think that's uh, i think it's definitely the way to go we're cool cool well i'm gonna we'll keep in touch as as your developments you know get further down the line and I'll you know I'll, I'll keep mentioning it stuff like that because one of the things I want to do with like the community I have on um, Film Trooper uh, is we talk about you hear about so much in the independent film s- sector of here's this new camera here's this new tool hey here's this new technique hey this is how somebody got funding or mm-hmm. this got this it's you were mentioning it too it's like there's all I read somewhere it's like your film is more valuable be- it, during the crowdfunding stages before it's even made because <laughs> once it's made people are like nah like yeah, it's okay. yeah. <laughs> like well, if you could take that harness that power for when it's actually made it'd be amazing so but there's this whole thing about you know there's so much media being produced um, you don't other filmmakers doesn't, it doesn't seem like um, everybody's trying to figure out how the, what tools and how it's done Mm-hmm. But never stop and go. You know what? I've taken the time to you know watch your films, and and watch all, all the stuff you've done and transmedia stuff, and and I want to be able to share that with other people. And go and say, guess what? This is really pretty good, and mm-hmm. this is pretty cool. Like you know, you know, I, my reputation, or if I'm going to be serious about it, it's like if something's not that great, I got to be honest as well too. You know, mm-hmm. and the thing was is, I was happily surprised. You know, with your your films, um, how entertaining they were. And how they just they kept going and, and like mm-hmm. in terms of like it was solid it was like here's a solid story like yeah. here's an independent oh, film you. that didn't didn't have these moments like oh that was oh. Uh, yeah well, what's been going on in the last twenty but minutes the, the, yeah. but I love what you're doing with um, uh, friend Nick because it's just a short burst of that suspense you know mm-hmm. and that's um, really it's engaging but all the other stuff you're doing and and um, I, I definitely want to you know share that with other people. And then I, I had this thing where I want to, like, there's other people in the community have other have done stuff as well that I want to grab. I have on my queue. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, i got to spend some time, watch this, and then just start sharing that. And I hope that will be something unique to the community. It's like, you know what? If you want to have your stuff talked about, like, go to this guy or whatever. Yeah, but yeah. then there's other stuff. And because I see that with all these other sites that just, or other followers, I just, the never, it's never really a time to say, time out. Like, let's just look at what you've done, the yeah. art the art of it, and let's give you that moment and time to, like, let's talk about it because this is really cool, and I think other people can be inspired to, to learn from it and stuff yeah. like that. And 
and you know, and giving that goodwill, you know, um, and exploring cinema that way. I mean, yeah, there's a lot to choose from, but a lot of the cinema we uh, online blogs are still like movies that feel feel so removed from us in terms of like here's this film from like the Middle East that had or whatever it's unique, but it was made through like you know I don't know community grants or something you know what I mean yeah. like you know it's like or like this person had this star like it's hard following Sundance stuff because it's like they, there's this subculture like that's so removed from like the normal Joe that's like yeah. look I'm fighting for, you know put you know make make a living make some money freelancing have a full time job or whatever it is and then I'm trying to do my thing and then I, and like does anybody even care I mean it's the worst feeling it's like I made it but like yeah you know yeah. nobody cared it's <laughs> you know it's like everyone's better off making what's that one film that's really popular that has it's like the worst film made that's so campy and so bad yeah. <laughs> that it's become this cult following I forget what it's called The Room or something The Room right? I think yeah yeah so <laughs> Yeah, I think that that's the. Um, it's definitely important to make the thing that you want. You know, sometimes people get wrapped up into what the reaction is going to be. Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna make a movie, and then this is how people are gonna treat me, or this is how people are gonna react to me. You know, they're they're gonna love the movie. They're gonna. And I think that it's really important to focus on you know whether it's a you know podcast or movie or anything. Like, what what is it that you want to tell? Like, what's the story that you want to tell, and what what do you want to get out of it? And um, and hopefully, you know, at some point think about like, is this something that is helpful to other people? And if it is, it's like, that's what you should worry about. And um, at some point the, you know, you're talking about the screening thing. That's, that's always the approach I took to my movies is like, no one wants to see this movie. Like no one, is, <laughs> no one is excited to go to theater on like a Thursday or Tuesday afternoon or whatever it is and go see this one. Like someone's dragging them to it. Um, but at the same time, it's like, I have to make it good so when they walk out they have the experience that you had it's sort of like hey this is better than I thought this didn't suck as bad as I thought it was going to suck so <laughs> I, I think it's a that t-shirt yeah it should be <laughs> um, but I think that's you know you're just dealing with a, a world where you know you're making a someone makes a movie for a few thousand dollars you know in some friends houses and with you know local actors and everything and in people's minds, you're competing against, you know, the best movies that cost $10, $20 million with named actors. And, you know, it's, it's all the same to people. They're going to judge you on the same yardstick that they do that stuff. So you have to keep that in mind. And you have to, the things that you can control and make really good, like the writing and the acting, um, do that. And then, the, you know, the things that take the big budget, don't worry about those. People will excuse those if the acting and the writing... And if it looks good and sounds good, you know, the audio quality is good. So it's important to focus on the things you can control and the things that you can't control. Just like, don't worry about them. Um, so, yeah, I think that's good advice. We can wrap it up here. I know you had yeah, uh, I gotta someplace get to go. Driving. So, but yeah, um, I, to Eugene. Yeah, appreciate it. Thank and, you so uh, before, much. Before we end up, I'll make sure we get a picture from the, wa- the yeah, waitress. Yeah. But we can wrap it up here and I'll, I'll do some uh, closing thoughts for the podcast. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Okay, that was my interview with filmmaker, transmedia artist slash entrepreneur, Mike Vogel. Some great insight about the realities of what happens to your film when you're you're done with it, you know? But I love the constant pursuit that Mike has with his need to tell stories. It's it's just inspirational. So please check out his latest venture at phrenicworld.com, and I'll be sure to post the link in the show notes. Okay, real quick tip. I mentioned at the top of the podcast that even with someone as talented as Mike, he still must work a full-time job to support his family. 
but that doesn't stop his artistic need to create, you know? There's something to be said about consistency and volume, you know? Do you remember the artist Keith Haring? He made these fairly simplistic, almost stick figure type art, and that's probably not the best way to describe it, but I'm trying to do my best over audio. Anyway, if you saw just one of Herring's pieces, you might say, how simple, and not think much about it. But then you might think, you know, it's still kind of cool. But when you start to see the breadth of his work, and you see the style repeated, and it's expanded upon, and you see the social messages and, and the message of love and change with his pieces, you know, that power and the consistency and the volume, you know, it commanded more attention. And I think for Mike on, like, Frednick, he can continue to produce more elements and expand the world even more and give his audience an experience worth their time. And I think he'll find that success if he just keeps going, which I'm pulling for him for sure. So it's something to think about. I think that time is a very valued commodity, especially when you're asking it from your audience, from your customer base. You know, be very, very respectful of their time. And I am very thankful and appreciative of your time if you stuck through this entire podcast with me. So thank you again, and I'll catch you on the next Film Trooper podcast. (laughs) ¶¶